0: a-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash man. Thanks for your help. Hey, it's Brett. We're taking a break for new episodes today. So we're gonna rebroadcast episode number 644, How to Develop Greater Self-Awareness. It's one of our most popular episodes of all time. Hope you enjoy it. And while I have you, if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to get a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. Thanks so much. We'll see you on Monday with a new episode. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. 95% of people say that they're self-aware, but only 10 to 15% of people actually are. As my guest today says, that means on a good day, 80% of us are lying to ourselves about how much we're lying to ourselves, and this blind spot can have big repercussions for our success and happiness. Her name is Tasha Yurik, and she's an organizational psychologist and the author of Insight, Why We're Not as Self-Aware as We Think, and How Seeing Ourselves Clearly Helps Us Succeed at Work and in Life. Tasha kicks off her conversation by arguing that our level of self-awareness sets the upper limit of our individual effectiveness and that self-awareness can be developed and is truly the meta skill of the 21st century. She then impacts what it is you know about yourself when you possess self-awareness, how there are two types of this knowledge, internal and external, and how you can have one without the other. Tasha then outlines the seven pillars of self-awareness Barriers to getting insights into them, including falling into the cult of self and how these barriers can be overcome, including asking yourself a daily check-in question. We then discuss how two of the most common methods of gaining self-knowledge, introspection and journaling, can in fact backfire and how to do them more effectively by asking yourself what instead of why, and actually journaling less instead of more. We also get into why you should be an informer rather than a me former on social media, how to become more mindful without meditation, and how to solicit and handle feedback from other people, including holding something called a dinner of truth. After the show's over, check Check out our show notes at aom.is slash self-awareness. All right, Tasha Yurick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you are the author of a book. You're a consultant, psychologist, and author of this book called Insight. It's all about developing self-awareness. Let's talk about your background. How did you end up focusing your career and consulting on helping leaders and just everyone develop more self-awareness?
1: So I've been an organizational psychologist for more than 15 years, and, but before that, I was the daughter of an entrepreneur. I'm actually a third-generation entrepreneur, and so I grew up literally watching my mom run a company. And I've I've always been very passionate about business. I actually think it's the the greatest personal growth tool there is, in some sense. Um, but but I. I fell in love with psychology at the same time and I was lucky enough when I was, you know, kind of ending college to find this field of organizational psychology where you know, essentially the goal is to help create prosperity, you know, both sort of financially and then just more generally in businesses by helping leaders be better, by helping companies create better cultures. And so I I went all in. I went and got my PhD in the field and have really never looked back. So for me, Part of what I focus on in my consulting work is I coach usually the top one or two levels in mid to large size organizations, so CEOs and and their direct reports. And what I kept seeing over and over and over for so many years was this very distinct pattern. And it was that the leaders and executives I coached who were willing to question the assumptions they had about themselves, who were willing to get sometimes brutal feedback about how they were showing up and what kind of leader they were, and who were willing to do the work and and make changes and really figure out how they can show up in the best possible way were infinitely more successful. But they weren't just more successful, they were happier, they were more confident. They were, they had more sustainable success. And as I started to think about this, you know, the the buzzword of self-awareness had emerged. But what I wanted to know, my my background is is scientific, is Is self-awareness actually as important as I thought it was? Were sort of the common pieces of wisdom out there? You know, you read a Forbes article that says, get more feedback. Were were those things actually true? And so I convened a research team, it's been more than seven years ago now, where we wanted to know what is self-awareness, where does it come from, why do we need it, and then probably most importantly, how do we get more of it? And it's been such a fascinating ride. We've learned that a lot of the most commonly accepted truths about self-awareness, what it means, how to get more of it, are wrong. So there's a lot there.
0: Well, you opened the book saying, arguing that self-awareness, you call it the meta skill of the 21st century. What do you, why do you think it's such an important skill to have these days? Like, What is it about modern work and just life in general in the 21st century that requires being more self-aware?
1: Sure. So let me give you a couple of scientifically supported outcomes of self-awareness, and then I'll circle back to your question because I think it's really the heart of the matter. Self-aware people, empirically, scientifically, are more successful at work. They get more promotions. They're better communicators, better influencers, better salespeople. They're more effective and motivating leaders. There's even a growing body of evidence that shows that self-awareness isn't just nice to have, it's a business imperative. Leaders who are self-aware lead more profitable companies. Companies who are comprised of self-aware people are more profitable. So all of these things together, you know, it's sort of like it's, it's important already. But the reason I think self-awareness is, is the foundational skill of the 21st century, even before COVID, but more, more so now is that we can only be as effective at all of these 21st century skills as we are self-aware. So think about this. Has anyone ever met an exceptional leader? who wasn't also self-aware or, or a very effective influencer or a relationship builder. And so the way I look at this is essentially our self-awareness is going to set the upper limit of our effectiveness. And that's why we'll talk about this later, but a lot of people have a, a more room to improve than they think. But the good news is self-awareness we've discovered is one of the most developable skills out there. So it, it just presents a huge opportunity for so many people.
0: You may, let's talk about what self-awareness is because you make the case there's two parts to it. There's internal and external self-awareness. And we're going to dig deep into each of these types. But on high level, like what's the difference between the two and why, why can't you have true or complete self-awareness without both?
1: When we started this research program, I was pretty naive and I thought, oh, it should be pretty easy to come up with a definition of what self-awareness is. And almost a thousand empirical studies later, we surveyed thousands of people all around the world. We did in-depth interviews, which I'm I'm sure we'll talk about. We finally, after about a year, were able to distill what what do we know when we're self-aware? And just like you said, it's made up of two types of self-knowledge. So the first is something we call internal self-awareness, which is knowing who you are at your core. What do you value? What are you passionate about? What what aspirations do you have for for the kind of life you want to live and the type of career you want to lead? But at the same time, there's something equally important called external self-awareness. And what that is, is in a nutshell, knowing how other people see us. And fascinatingly, kind of, you, you alluded to this is we found that these two types of self-knowledge are completely unrelated. So if there are any stats nerds listening to this, there is a 0.0 correlation between your level of internal self-awareness and external self-awareness. But what I think is really important about that is it, it provides the roadmap. What does it actually take to become self-aware? It's a, an equal focus on internal and external self-awareness, even when those answers are different you know, you sort of think about the way I see myself is going to be different than the way other people see me. But the most self-aware people we've discovered are able to balance both of those types of self-knowledge, not putting one over the other in terms of importance, but being able to sort of live sometimes with that contradiction.
0: Well, because I think people can think of uh, examples of people who are internally self-aware, but aren't externally self-aware. So they know kind of what they want in life, but they're clueless about how other people perceive them. Right. What's an example of someone who like has external self-awareness but no internal self-awareness
1: so the the archetype that you talked about I call introspectors the opposite of that somebody who has high external self-awareness and low internal self-awareness I've named a pleaser and and I actually fall into that category i'm I'm far more comfortable asking someone for feedback about myself than I am you know really pondering who I am at my core and what we found with pleasers is first of all there's a, a slightly higher proportion of women in that category men are just a little bit more likely to be introspectors but for pleasers their journey is usually figuring out what do they really want you think about you know the the classic trope of like I I am, instead of going pre-med and in in this fully full ride scholarship, I'm going to quit school and audition for American Idol, (laughs) you know, and it's like, I really want to do that. And I'm doing it because it's, it's the thing I want at my core. That's the thing that pleasers really struggle with is sometimes they can get wrapped up in what other people want them to do and lose sight of, or not even think about what they
0: really want. So internal self-awareness is knowing what you want. External self-awareness is knowing what, how other people perceive you. But then what's the opposite of that, of being self-aware?
1: <laughs> oh, that's a big question. So everybody sees this all around us in the world, of late particularly, but just in general. I think the opposite of self-awareness is closer to a self-absorption. So sometimes people say, can you be too self-aware? And what I think a lot of people get at with that question is, can you be so focused on yourself that you start to lose confidence? You know, you start to overthink everything you're doing or place too much emphasis on how other people see you. But that's actually not self awareness. That's, that's almost like self consciousness. So self awareness is understanding who we are our strengths and our weaknesses, everything that we are, but also having sort of a sense of self-acceptance. And that's why to me, self-absorption is the opposite of that. It's it's having this sense that no matter what our objective reality is or, or where we stand on you know, all the things we want to be and do, we think we're great anyway. And there's a lot of research that shows just how dangerous that can be. I get into this in, in Insight, but there's a lot of internal barriers to seeing ourselves clearly. There's a lot of sort of external cultural barriers to that. So the people that are self-aware are successful at fighting those things. They they are able to see the barriers. They're able to sort of jump over them. Whereas most people can get wrapped up in, I call it the cult of self, right? this This idea that I am special and unique and wonderful no matter what, and nobody really understands me. That's the opposite of self-awareness.
0: And we'll dig into these biases or these roadblocks here in a bit. But through your work and your research, you've uncovered, so we, okay, we know what self-awareness is kind of knowing what you want in, in life, but also understanding what, how other people perceive you. But you've uncovered sort of like what you call seven pillars of self-awareness, things about your life that in order to be self-aware, you need to kind of have an understanding about. And we'll dig into a few of these, but you know, what are, in your research, what are this, these seven pillars of insight that you think people need to have in order to be self-aware?
1: So this is just fascinating. Our research showed this crystal clear distinction between when someone is self-aware, what do they know? And when someone isn't self-aware, what don't they know? So I'll, I'll go through them. And this is kind of in order from most core to us to most external. And by the way, you can receive internal and external information about all of them. And I think that'll make sense when I when I say what they are. So the first is our values, knowing the principles that we want to live our lives by. Number two are our passions. What are the things that we just love to do make us leap out of bed in the morning and, and how can we design our lives so we do them as much as possible. Another is our aspirations. And that's not just what we want to accomplish in our life and our work, but also what experience do we want to have when we're here on this earth? Another one is is basically the fit we have, the, the types of environments and people who give us energy versus taking our energy away. Another is our patterns. And this is basically, you know, knowing your personality, knowing in in this type of situation, I tend to respond this way. Or in general, I tend to be more of an extrovert or an introvert and so on. The next one is our reactions. And this gets a lot of play with self-awareness. You know, you think about my in the moment awareness of my thoughts, my feelings, my behaviors. And what's also part of this reactions component is our underlying strengths and weaknesses. You know, if I have anger management Problems, a weakness, I am going to in the moment, you know, lose my cool more often than not. And so that's why those two things are linked. And the last pillar of insight, the seventh pillar, is knowing our impact on others. And the beauty of these seven pillars is you can do your own unique exploration from an internal standpoint. And it's valuable to get feedback from other people. And so that's where I I sort of think about internal and external self-awareness as the two camera angles for how we can see ourselves. And then those seven pillars are, you know, is is the what, is the work that we need to do.
0: Yeah, I thought that was interesting that you can, it's possible to have internal or not have internal self-awareness about some of these things, but external self-awareness can help you get more insight into that. I was thinking like, you know, your triggers, right? Mm -hmm. You might not even be aware of the things that cause you to, to flip. For whatever, but other people can see that. And if you get their feedback, you can finally figure out, like, okay, well, this sort of thing triggers me for whatever reason.
1: Exactly. Yeah. We are notoriously poor judges of particularly how we come across to other people. But like you said, our our reactions, even our values. One thing I do with the the CEOs I work with is, is, you know, we work on clarifying their values, but it's also really helpful to ask other people based on my behavior and what you know of me, you know, what do you think is most important to me? What are the, what are my key values? I've done that exercise so many times that sometimes something unique will come from that conversation. Something that maybe that person didn't even know they were doing or, or even was so core to them that they didn't think about it because it's just how they see the world. So that's why I think those two perspectives are so important.
0: I, yeah, I thought that was interesting with the values thing, because a lot of people like, I have a mission statement where I value this, 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 this. But then you look at like how they spend their time, their money, how they treat. And it's like, that's really going to show you what they really value
1: it's keeping you honest, right? I've had, I told a story about this in in an article I wrote recently about how I had lunch with a client and I was really, really worked up about this person who had sent a nasty response to my newsletter that day. And it was like consuming all of my thoughts. And he, and I was telling him, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to respond to this guy and I'm going to say this and this and this. And he just looked at me and he said, Tasha, this is not the Tasha I know right now. The Tasha I know wants to make the world better for as many people as possible. And I'm hearing you talk about how you're going to take this poor guy down. And it was was just (laughs) such an instructive moment. And I think as much as we can have people around us who trust us and love us enough to tell us the truth, that can keep us honest. You know, like you said, am I really following my mission statement on a bad day? Having someone call me out is (laughs) really helpful.
0: Well, let's talk about how do you get these insights into these different pillars of self awareness. I mean, you just mentioned one. You had a colleague say, "Just tell you, hey, this isn't really you. You're better than this." And any other ways that you can find insights about this stuff?
1: Sure. So th- there's a lot to this answer, and I, I might not be able to give you anything satisfying <laughs> on it. But I think you know part of it are the types of questions we ask ourselves, and then the process we use to get feedback from other people. So values is another example. It's it's not uncommon when i talk to you know organizational leaders for me to say hey have you have you actually sat down and thought about your top 3 values and how you're going to use those to be more effective sometimes people just look at me blankly <laughs> you know and i think it, that's the kind of thing that it's going to morph and evolve as we go about our lives but even just to sit down and ask what are my values another is to put up Processes that help other people give you feedback, especially if you are trying to work on something or get better at something. Let's say that you know someone aspires to be a better public speaker. A good way to continue that journey is to put a few people in place who are gonna watch you speak publicly and figure out a way to regularly get feedback from them. So I think it's really, and this is where our research is, is kind of nuanced because there isn't one way to get there. But what we've discovered is to build self-awareness in all these ways, if you're strategic and smart about it, it actually doesn't become like another part-time job. It can be done very efficiently and effectively with not a ton of time.
0: And then you also mentioned the book, I mean, in some ways, they're just sort of like big, like you call like earthquake moments. Maybe you get turned Mm -hmm. down from a job or you get fired from a job or, you know, you have a big failure in your life and you have to sort of have this reckoning maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I'm doing something wrong <laughs> because it, the, the the situation forces you to actually introspect and try to get some self-awareness of the situation.
1: Right. One would hope. That's that's the difference between people who grow their self-awareness in their lives and people who, you know, just want to sort of remain blissfully ignorant. I, I understand the urge. You know, we think, like, if I get fired, I, I might think, well, nobody understands me. They it, You know, they wouldn't know a good salesperson if they smacked them in the face. But I think especially when when life hands us an outcome that is dramatically different than what we expect, professionally, personally, anything, that is a data point. <laughs> and if we're not really doing the work to make sure that there wasn't something we were missing or there wasn't something we did to contribute to that, I, I think we're, we're, we're losing that opportunity for greater self-awareness and greater empowerment and just being able to, to build the life that we want to live.
0: Right. And you hear people who've had like near death experiences or had to go to the hospital for, you know, a health situation. Like that was a moment where they had to be like, I gotta take care of my health. I gotta figure out what what it's really important to me. And ideally, it wouldn't take like a heart attack for you to do that. I mean, ideally you would start you'd be able to be attuned like throughout your daily life of you know, to gain insights about yourself so that doesn't have to happen.
1: Exactly. And and that was one thing we found pretty clearly in what highly self-aware people did differently. You know, they did come across those earthquake events for sure. I think that's what life is about sometimes. But what they did differently is they looked for kind of almost like this incremental daily insight. And it wasn't spending hours and hours in therapy, you know, it wasn't <laughs> writing journals, you know, every single day it was really just having that curiosity on a daily basis. Pretty much all of our subjects that were highly self-aware had some form of what I named the daily check-in. And basically what you do is you, you take at the end of your day, if you're getting ready for bed or brushing your teeth, you ask yourself, what went well today? What didn't go so well today? And then what can I do to be smarter tomorrow? And if you think about that, it's so targeted and focused. It doesn't take a ton of time. But if it increases your self-awareness by even, say, 1% a week, if you do that most days, that's when you're going to start to get these really astonishing sort of compounding improvements in your self-awareness. And for me, that's what I would recommend to someone You don't want to just wait until, you know, like you said, you don't want to wait until you land yourself in the hospital because you didn't see the pattern coming. If you take a little bit more time and be proactive, you can prevent some of
0: those things from happening. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So you mentioned earlier that gaining self-insight or self-awareness can be hard because we have all these psychological biases working against us. What are some of these biases that are working against this? And then after that, like how do you overcome some of these blind spots?
1: Let's start with the biggest one. In our research, we have found that if you ask people, are you self-aware? About 95% of people believe that they are. And the reality is that only about 10 to 15% of people actually fit that um, profile. Only 10 to 15% of us actually are self-aware. And so the delta on that is pretty stunning. You know, the joke I always make is on a good day, 80% of us are lying to ourselves. About whether we're lying to ourselves. And there's a lot of sort of issues about the way humans are wired that we prefer to see ourselves with rose-colored glasses. We aren't as likely to question our assumptions about ourselves. And so in my opinion, the biggest barrier there is to be self-aware is believing that we already are and our research subjects that i that i told you about earlier who you know made these really dramatic improvements in their self-awareness had this it, it was almost like a paradox in their mindset on one hand, they were building their self knowledge, you know, incrementally and strategically. But on the other hand, they had this philosophy that no matter what I know about myself, there's always more to learn. There was one gentleman in our study who was a, a middle school science teacher. And he said, I kind of think about self awareness like exploring space and that no matter what I learn, there's always more to discover. And that's what makes it so exciting. And I really love that because it, it turns it turns the problem on its head. Instead of saying, oh gosh, you know, we all need to be more self-aware and we're not as self-aware as we think. I think it's just a matter of having the right mindset of curiosity. So that's something that anybody who's listening to this today can do right now in this moment. Now there's obviously action that has to back us up and, and that's what we have gotten into a little bit. I, I think the other thing I'd say is there really is a cult of self movement happening. And, and it's not just for us millennials. It's not just for Americans. It's been shown kind of all over the world that people are getting more low level narcissism or kind of gaining levels of narcissism. And so part of it is I never want people to overcorrect and go like, oh, well, I guess the answer is to say that I suck. But I think we have to be really careful about, you know, think about your last social media post was it to show people how great you are subconsciously or consciously? Those are the types of things that I think really pull us away from self-awareness if we get into that cult of self. So I think those are two big barriers. Um, There's a lot more. I'm not sure if you want to go into them, but that would be my initial response.
0: Yeah, I'd say that psychological, bias. we we don't want to feel bad about ourselves. And so we 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 basically engage in cognitive dissonance to mm-hmm. make us feel better about ourselves, even though so we all if say something bad happens, well, well, it wasn't my fault, it was that guy's fault. Maybe but if you never even consider the fact that you might have some sort of responsibility in the outcome, then you can never become more self aware. But I, I want to dig into this cult of self you've talked about. So it's sort of a culture. And you're saying we're becoming more narcissistic. And narcissism, I think you made this clear, is like low level. We're not, people aren't becoming clinical narcissists where that's like a psychological disorder. But you're just talking about people are just so focused on the self that they can't even take, it's harder and harder for people to take a third party perspective on things.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, if you look at some of the studies, there's one that I think really sums it up. They looked at the percentage of people who agreed with the statement, I am a very important person. It's increased, you know, I think it's like 30% in the last couple of decades. And, and if you look around, that's something that we see everywhere. You know, millennials are often blamed for it. And I think, you know, Some of that has to do with life stage and just growing up and maturing. But at the end of the day, those increases have been documented for for pretty much all age groups. And and by the way, they started in the 1960s. (laughs) So this isn't just something that's happened in the last 10 years. It's, It's really been going on for a while and doesn't seem to be losing that much steam.
0: And also you highlight in this cult of self section in your book that there's like research that shows that focusing more on yourself, doing more introspection, because that's what people think. I need to become more self-aware. So they think I got to go off to a retreat or out into the woods and just be by myself and with my thoughts and journal. They they think that's the key to becoming more self-aware, just doing some really heavy introspection. But you highlight all this research that shows actually if you introspect the wrong way or too much it can actually make you less self-aware.
1: This was one of the biggest surprises in our research. It was actually so surprising that I almost abandoned this project. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe self-awareness and introspection are bad. But essentially what we did is we surveyed about 300 people. This was really early on in our in our project. And I I was assuming that, you know, If I asked them to say, How much do you think about yourself? How much do you kind of reflect on your thoughts and feelings and motives? Then I wanted to measure their self awareness. And I also wanted to measure how, you know, how are they feeling about life? Did they feel in control? Did they have, you know, depression or anxiety? Were they happy with their relationships at work and at home? And I actually found the exact opposite pattern that I expected. So the more people introspected, the less self-aware they tended to be and the the worse off in their lives they were more stressed more depressed more anxious they were less satisfied just with life in general they felt less in control and as i started to explore this what i what i ended up learning was it's not that introspection in and of itself doesn't work. It's that most of us are making some pretty fundamental mistakes. Again, common wisdom. Common wisdom says, you know, go sit on a mountaintop or go be in the lotus position on a beach and if you ask yourself these questions, the answers will come. But as it turns out, there are so many things about ourselves that are basically unknowable. This is very stressful for introspectors to say, wait a minute. If I, if I don't ask myself the question, I I can't find the answer. So I think that's a piece of it is, is we have to understand that a lot of our unconscious thoughts and feelings and motives are not going to be available to us. And the challenge then is if, you know, if we don't know that and we ask ourselves a question, we find an answer that feels true. But maybe isn't true. You know, like, let's say I, 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 I'm running a startup and I get in a in a blowout fight with one of my partners and I ask myself, why did that happen? What I might decide is, you know, maybe this person and I just don't know how to work together. But maybe the actual reason was I didn't eat breakfast that morning and my blood sugar was low and I wasn't in control of my emotions in the same way I would be otherwise. So I think that's just a good example of where, you know, if we pounce on the first answer that feels true, sometimes it can lead us away from the truth about ourselves. That's just one example of of the mistakes we can make when we're introspecting.
0: And, And how do you, what can you do to overcome those introspection mistakes so you can introspect more effectively?
1: Thankfully, there's a small change we can make that will make introspection actually work for us. So if I go back to the example I gave, what we found of, you know, I get in a fight with my uh, business partner and I ask why. Like, why did that happen? Why do I feel this way? Why is this other person always starting fights with me? When we looked at what do highly self-aware people do differently, we found that they almost never ask themselves why questions. So they didn't ask those questions that I just rattled off. They they had a very small kind of change that completely altered the effectiveness of their introspection. And what we found is they tended to ask um, about 10 times as many what questions. So the example in this situation would be, um, you know, what was going on in that conversation? Or what part of that issue do I own? Or what can I do differently in the future to prevent this? And and at first, to me, the difference was really subtle. But as I started getting into it, what I discovered was essentially why questions make us more emotional. What questions keep us more level-headed? why questions tend to focus us on the problem and just kind of reliving it over and over. What questions help us be more solution focused? Why questions tend to trap us in the past. You know, We get stuck in just reliving it over and over. And what questions help us move forward? And so the tool that, that I teach all around the world is called What Not Why. And it's been transformational, I think, for so many people, myself included, that if we just make that small change a lot of amazing things can happen.
0: No, I agree. That insight was really powerful because I've I've noticed that in my own life, whenever something bad happens, you typically you tend to go to why? Why did this mm-hmm. happen? And like you, you said, you get emotional, and usually the emotion that's you go to a dark place. Like, well, you know, because of this happened a long time ago, and I've got this problem, blah blah blah. But like, if you just shift the questions to what, it yeah, you're right. It keeps you analytical and it allows you to find a solution and move forward.
1: That's it. And it, there's almost these introspective red herrings that we can um, get into if we ask why. Like a very common one usually ends up with it was because my mother didn't love me. Or, you know, what it goes back to this childhood place almost that this might be controversial, but I'm actually not sure how helpful that is. If you are um, in focus therapy with a, a trained professional who's helping you work through those issues, I think that's different. But when it comes to just these everyday insights and understanding ourselves, as much as we can focus on looking at the present, figuring out what we're going to do in the future. And then, you know, sometimes we might look at the past to to look at patterns, but I think that helps us stay away. You know, I call it the rabbit hole of rumination that you just described.
0: Yeah, and, and this kind of leads to my next question because you had this section about journaling because people often think of journaling as a really great tool to self reflect and get new insights about themselves. And I read this chapter and I felt vindicated because <laughs> you know early on in my life, you know when I was a teenager and like my early adulthood, I was like a, a, a religious journalist, like I just journaled all the time. But then I think a couple of years ago, I just it, like it wasn't doing anything for me, and I just realized. It's like, I just ruminate over the same things. Like I read through my journals from like years, and like the same issues come up over and over again. And I was like, nothing's getting better. And it just made me feel bad. And so I just stopped. And I felt kind of bad because according to the internet, self-improvement internet, you're supposed to journal. It's the best thing ever. And I just stopped. I didn't really, it felt bad, but it made me feel better. But you highlight research that journaling can actually not be that useful in gaining new insights about yourself.
1: It's the same kind of example as with introspection. If we do it the right way, it can be really effective. But if we make mistakes, again, you know, if we trust what we read on the internet, sometimes it can lead us astray. So what we and others have found is journaling can be very helpful If, like you said, we don't religiously write in it. I know that's kind of mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing for me, actually. I I have spent my life in perpetual guilt so that I didn't journal more. But what our self-awareness kind of research subject taught us was they turned to journaling when they were facing something important in their lives. Maybe it was they were at a turning point or they were facing a big decision or something you know, really surprising had happened that they wanted to better understand. But they they sort of had an event-based model to journaling versus this daily habit. I think there's a lot of power in that. There are other pieces to this research that have shown that if we focus too much on emotion or too much on kind of the logic of what happened, that can derail us. And so as much as we can have a balanced view of journaling where we talk about how we feel and kind of what was happening, that can be another way to make sure that we get insight from it. And, you know, because if you focus too much on emotions, it, what you said is going to happen, you know, you kind of get sucked in in this negative way. If you focus too much on on the rational part of what happened, you know, here's what I ate for lunch today, you're probably not going to get that same level of insight. So... It, it's like anything, you know, it's, there's a middle ground. There's a middle ground between what you write about and how often you write. That's going to give, I think, the most value.
0: Yeah, that's what I think I found. Whenever I have a, a problem, I'll go to my journal just to write, start writing things out. And I, I, tr- I try to avoid the emotion stuff and just focus on, well, here's the issue, here are the problems, what are potential solutions? And I find that helpful. But I, yeah, the daily thing, I just, I don't care anymore.
1: <laughs> Good for you. No, I think that's the perfect approach.
0: So going back to this idea of the, the cult of self, you talk about how, how we share things on the internet. The internet, it's so, it it, it exacerbates it, it. It promotes the cult of this cult of self. And I like this idea. We had this, t- well, you're told on the internet, you got you to gotta develop your personal brand, share about yourself, because that's the only way you move forward in life. But you highlight research that, that makes you feel terrible, or it can make you feel terrible. And it also just doesn't help you gain any more insight about yourself. So you offer an alternative to social media sharing that can be more useful. Talk us Walk us through that research.
1: This was another big surprise in our research. We found that the, the most self-aware people, counter to everything I just said about the cult of self, actually spent about 30% more time on social media than the average person. And that was another moment where I was like, wait a minute, that makes no sense. But then when we started looking at what they were posting, it was dramatically different from most people. So whereas, you know, like you said, social media almost teaches us to, other researchers have called it to be a me former. Here's what I ate for breakfast. Here's this amazing award that I won. It's my child's you know, two and a half year birthday. <laughs> All these things that are just about me, me, me. But our highly self-aware people that we studied They use social media, not as a me megaphone, but as an opportunity to enrich other people's lives. So they gave us examples of, you know, I I love to do nature photography. And I if I find something really beautiful, I post it because I I want other people to feel calm and, and grounded. Or I read this hilarious article and I wanted to share it with others because it would make them laugh. So it's this idea that instead of thinking about what we're trying to accomplish for ourselves, if we can flip the question and say you know first of all why what's the reason I'm posting this what am I hoping to gain and is it making other people's lives better and i think you know if if you're trying to build a brand it's not about getting 100% there like for me i try to do about 10% posts talking about myself and 90% posts trying to make other people you know feel better do better be better because we can't just completely neglect the self-focused piece but i think most of our we just have to change the percentages a little bit.
0: Actually, so be an informer and not a yeah, me Yeah, be form. an informer. Sorry, yes, yeah.
1: exactly. Thank you.
0: No, it's so be an informer. Informer, not a me Not a me-former. Not a me-former. Um, so any other tools? I mean, so introspection, you know, if you ask what, instead of why, that can help you gain some in- internal self-awareness. Any other tools you found effective that you know really self-aware people use to gain internal self-awareness?
1: So we talked about um, what, not why, the daily question, Another thing to think about, there's this obviously big social force on meditation. And meditation is primarily about kind of understanding and, and noticing what we're thinking, feeling, what's happening around us without judgment. But the beauty of this for any fellow type A people who are listening to this is that we don't have to meditate to be mindful, to get those same effects. And, you know, there, there's sort of a lot to this, but I'm just going to give one example. One way to practice mindfulness that isn't ab- about mantras and meditation is something that I call comparing and contrasting. So, comparing and contrasting is basically if you find yourself in a situation that feels familiar. So the example I give in the book is actually, I I spent about five years working in the corporate world before I went out on my own about 10 years ago. And I found that almost every time I had a new job, I would enjoy it for two years. And then after two years, I would start to get bored and restless. And one day, my husband actually pointed it out. He said, have you noticed this pattern? So what I started to do was compare and contrast, you know, what is similar about each of those moments where I started to not, you know, not like my job as much anymore. And what I did is I looked back in my life and I thought, and I realized that every every time I had worked for someone else, there was a two-year ticking time bomb. But whenever I was working for myself, like when I was doing my own research or when I was teaching at a university, when I was in grad school, I didn't feel that way. So by comparing and contrasting, I was able to notice, you know, again, without judgment, it just was what it was, that I might have been, that I know that I'm better off working for myself. And people don't think about mindfulness in that more general form. And I think it's just really helpful for people that, you know, if you're meditating, more power to you. And there are more options if there's anybody who wants to increase their insight and be mindful, but they don't
0: want to meditate. All right. So we talked about gaining uh, internal self-awareness. Let's move to external self-awareness. This is how people, an understanding of how people perceive us. And this is where insight or self-awareness can get scary because it's always scary <laughs> to think about what other people think of us. And also people don't like to give, people don't, people don't like to tell you what they really think about you. It's the idea of the white lie, right? So what can we do? What are some tools that you found to help people get Constructive, useful, external self awareness without being destroyed emotionally in the process.
1: That's right. You have to keep your mojo in the process. Um, What we found was, again, some surprising findings. People who are highly self aware did not, in fact, go to everybody they knew and ask for feedback, they kept their circle very, very small. Most of most people told us it was between three and five people that they regularly asked for feedback from. And these weren't just randomly selected people either. There seemed to be two main criteria that they used to select this handful of people. So the first criteria was, do I believe this person is on my side? In other words, are they rooting for me? Are they supporting me? Or are they like a secret frenemy that, that is gunning against me? And I think most of us know that intuitively. If, if we feel in our gut that that person supports us, even if we're not incredibly close, that usually checks that box. The second thing is, do I feel like that person is going to tell me the truth? I think if, if everybody thinks about your life and your work, There's a lot of people that fit one of those criteria. You know, for me, like my mom is the most supportive, wonderful person who's always on my side. But is she going to be critical about an article I'm writing? maybe not. Or there are people who just love to be critical, who who don't actually want you to be successful. So, so the, the magic of picking the right people to give us feedback is to choose these, I call them loving critics. And I think the beauty of this is, again, you don't have to spend all of your time finding 20 people that you rotate through. It's a matter of saying, okay, who are, even to start with, two or three people that I can go to and say, and sort of formalize this relationship and say, you know, here's why I'm doing this, here's what I'm working on, would you be willing to let me talk to you for five minutes once a month to just get your feedback? So let's say, you know, going back to the example I gave earlier, somebody who wants to be a better public speaker. If I had my two or three loving critics, I would want them to be people who saw me speak publicly and I would ask them once a month, very quickly, hey, as you know, I'm trying to be a better public speaker. First question, what feedback do you have for me from the last 30 days? Second question is, what ideas do you have for me in the next 30 days? And the reason the conversation is five minutes is what I would say is very simply, thank you. I don't justify. I don't tell them why they're wrong. I don't give excuses. I just say thank you. So I think that's really powerful is, again, being focused and strategic about how we're getting that feedback. The second tool I would offer is... Um, this one's a little scarier. I'd actually be curious what you think about it. This is from a communications professor named Josh Meisner. And it's, I, I've named it the Dinner of Truth. So basically what it entails is you find someone uh, in your life or your work who you have a good relationship with, who you want to have an even better relationship with. You take them out to dinner virtually uh, or in person, depending on your comfort level. You ask them the very simple question, what do I do that is most annoying to you? And then, once again, just like the loving critics, you listen to the answer and you say thank you. And what I've discovered, you know, I would never share a tool like this with, with any listeners, readers, clients if I haven't done it multiple times myself. And I have been shocked at actually what a positive experience every dinner of truth I've had has been.
0: No, so that I read that it reminded me. I have some. We have some. Uh, my wife and I have some uh, friends, and in their family, they have this tradition. similar to this. It's on your birthday. Some the people in your family have to tell something they they admire about you in that that year of your life, and then also something you got to work on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I love that. And, uh, they, some of the stories out of it are really hilarious <laughs> because people learn things that they finally they sort of, the, the truth is uncovered, but it's, it, I think it's similar to that, that dinner idea.
1: That's, I love that idea actually. Cause then it becomes a ritual. And
0: yeah, like, oh, it it's is
1: birthday. a birthday. It's time to do that. It doesn't time. let you off the hook.
0: So, I, okay. This is great stuff. So this is way you can get controlled, very fine-tuned feedback about a specific thing in your life. But a lot of the feedback we get in life, external, that can give us external self-awareness, it's like, it's unsolicited, mm-hmm. right? It's just some random guy on the internet, or it could be a family member or a friend just saying, hey, you, you need to do this. And oftentimes it's very jarring. It can be really uncomfortable. How do you, any tips on how to handle that unsolicited, often hard feedback that we get throughout our daily lives?
1: I think we have to be very careful to be honest, with unsolicited feedback. You never know someone's motives when they're doing that unless you're 100% sure you know, it's your best friend and you know they love you. But but usually it's not. It's, it's like you said, that random person on the internet or that random coworker. So that would be my first piece of advice is, is just be really careful that you don't accept what they're saying as face value immediately. The second piece of advice I'd give is actually probably counterintuitive, which is don't do anything about it for a while. Just put it in the back of your mind and let it be. The urge we have to, you know, oh my gosh, I'm going to figure this out. A lot of times we're still we're reeling from this feedback, especially if it was difficult to hear. And even if we try to do that, it's, it's not often going to result in what we think it will. We might just get more upset or we might feel you know, depressed. So it, take a week or two, just put it in the back of your mind and say, okay, that person gave me that data point. I'm going to look into it, but only when I'm ready. And there's no magical timeline for this. I think it's whenever you feel like, okay, it stings a little bit less and now I'm going to learn more about it. The third piece of advice I'd give is again, to go back to your loving critics. You want to vet this feedback. If, if this is a one-off person, obviously you've got to decide how important that person is. Like if it's your boss, maybe you might want to take it, you know, a little more seriously. But if you ask your loving critics, Hey, I, I got this feedback. You know, somebody says that I'm constantly interrupting people. Have you experienced that? Or is that something that you've seen as well? And if you ask a couple of your loving critics, the beauty of this is you're getting uh, a wider sample of people. So it may be that that they see it too, and then you can talk to them in a supportive, safe way about like, okay, let's figure this out. What's this about? What can I do differently? Can you help me? And then you're more empowered. So at at the end of the day, it's kind of a stupid analogy, but we are the captain of our feedback ship. (laughs) And we can't let other people climb on board and start steering it. So I think as much as we can do that and remember that we're in charge, we get to decide what we do with this. We might you know, say, thank you very much for that feedback and never think about it again, or that might lead to a transformational growth experience. But the, but the point is we're in charge.
0: Well, here's the question. We've talked about internal and external self-awareness separately. Are there practices that you found that are useful it, to sort of synthesize the two so you can actually sort of develop a holistic picture of self-awareness? Or is it something that just happens naturally as you're doing these, using these different tools for internal and external self-awareness?
1: That's a great question. I, I think it's more the second statement that if if we build in daily practices that keep us curious, that give us more information, some days we're going to have a, a conflict between the way we see ourselves, the way other people see us. Some days they're going to be additive, right? You know, I think one classic example is when other people see a strength that we didn't know we had, you know, and that's like, oh my God. And then all of a sudden I'm more in charge and I can be more intentional about it. And I know that they're seeing me in that way and that gives me confidence. So, so I do think it is a little bit more of a, of a give and take, but I, the important thing is what are those habits you're going to put in place and my suggestion would be don't try to go big right out the door when i'm working with ceos as an example we work on one behavioral goal at a time no more no less and the reason for that is if we if we sort of overpromise to ourselves we're not going to be able to sustain it so so if somebody's listening to this and you say i want to improve my my external self awareness Maybe the, the number one thing you do for the next month or two is put those two to three loving critics in place. And once you've done that, maybe it's time to think about, okay, do I want an internal self-awareness habit that I'm going to build? But if you don't build them as habits, that's when we start to sort of get these fits and starts of, oh, this is helpful, but you know I haven't done it. Like my journal, I haven't written in my journal for a year. That's probably not going to be as helpful.
0: Well, Tasha, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and the work that you're doing now?
1: So the first thing is, uh, I found that it's not about me, it's about everyone else. And so we put together a, it's a great resource. If anybody's wondering how self-aware they are, and they want more than just their gut reaction, we put together something called the Insight Quiz, which is a 14 item subset of our longer validated assessment. And what you do is it takes about five minutes, you fill it out, and then you put in the email address of someone else who knows you well, they fill it out. And once the system has both of those types of information, you get a report with with your high-level self-awareness internally and externally, and then a couple of things you can do starting now to improve if you choose to. So if anybody wants to take that, you can find it at insight-quiz.com. I'm also at tashayurik.com. We actually just launched a really exciting new virtual course called the Future Ready Leader. So there's a lot of information there, but I am fortunately or unfortunately very findable
0: on the internet. Fantastic. Well, Tasha Yurik, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Me too. My guest today was Tasha Urich. She's the author of the book, Insight. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about her work at her website, TashaYurik.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash self-awareness, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you not only listen to the Wim podcast, but put what you've heard into action.